Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we have already offered to you this morning a prayer, a request, that you would speak to us through your word. And Lord, we sing that request, and I'm now praying that same request in faith because we believe what you have told us, that your word, as you send it forth, will not return to you void. It will bear fruit. It will accomplish all for which you send it to do. So Heavenly Father, we come to you now with our Bibles open and with hearts that are hungry and expectant. And we pray that you would show us your glory, that you would exalt Christ, that you would speak to us so that we might be shaped and fashioned, conformed into the image of your Son, so that our faith would be deepened, our joy would be strengthened, so that our love for you might increase as we ponder and consider the incredible love in the gospel that you have shown to us. So Father, I pray that you would now attend to the preaching of your word, that your spirit would be at work in us for the sake of the glory of your name. Amen. Please open once again to Luke chapter 7. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 35. Luke 7, verse 24 through 35. Thank you. The theme of Luke's book, this recounting of Jesus' life and ministry, is the good news of salvation for everyone in Jesus. Luke writes for Gentiles, for lepers, for women, for soldiers, for outsiders, and for God's people, Israel, announcing the good news that God is at work in Jesus and through Jesus to fulfill his promises to bring salvation. The word gospel means good news, and that's what Luke writes to us about. But it is very easy for us to take the gospel, the good news, and actually make the gospel about us. It's easy for us to make the gospel about our needs, about our experiences, about our destiny, and about how we are changed. And that's all true. It is true that the gospel does say things about us, doesn't it? The gospel tells us that we are sinners. The gospel tells us that we are loved by a God who is infinitely holy and who has sent his son for us. The gospel tells us that we are made alive, that we are counted righteous, considered righteous through faith in Christ. The gospel does say all of those things about us. But even more importantly, the gospel tells us something about God. It tells us what he is like. It tells us what he is doing in the world for his glory. So the gospel is good news, yes, and amen. But it is not just any good news. It is good news from God, good news about God, about what God is doing in the world throughout the course of history to magnify his glory. Therefore, our response to the gospel, your response to the gospel, my response to the gospel, everyone's response to the good news of Jesus Christ is ultimately a response to God. Our response to the gospel is ultimately a response to God because the gospel actually reveals God to us. What is it that the gospel reveals about God? What is it that you and I either embrace or reject? Well, in Luke chapter 7, following an exchange with John the Baptist, 
Jesus challenges a crowd that was gathered there. He challenges them about their response to John's ministry and also about their response to his ministry. John comes preaching repentance. John the Baptist was preparing the way. Jesus comes preaching the good news of the kingdom, announcing this good news. And all of this, John's preaching, Jesus' preaching, John's ministry of preparation, and Jesus' ministry of preaching the gospel, all of this is from God. It's all from him. And while some will joyfully embrace what God is doing at this specific point in history, as we come to see, there are others who reject it. And in Jesus' words to the crowd, to some who embrace it and others who reject it, we find three things that the gospel reveals to us about God. The first we find in verses 24 through 29, and it's this. The gospel reveals, first of all, the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Follow along with me, starting in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Last week, we saw how Jesus answered John's questions. John was in prison, and he sent word through two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we wait for another? And lest we think that Jesus is rebuking John in any way, he turns to the crowd and actually calls their attention to John and to John's ministry. And as we'll see, I believe he's doing this not just to draw attention to John the man, but rather to call attention to John's ministry, to call attention to John's message, a ministry and a message that had been given to John by God. He asks this question three times to the crowd. What did you go out to see? Three times. What is it that you went out into the wilderness to see? By asking these questions, Jesus is drawing them in. He's inviting reflection, inviting them to consider John. The first of these questions in verse 24, at the end of verse 24, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He asks, did you go out into the wilderness to see something fragile? Is that what got your attention? Did you go out into the wilderness to see a spineless, wishy-washy kind of a man who blows wherever the wind of culture and consensus takes him? Hardly. John was bold. John was firm. John was powerful in his preaching, unwavering in his convictions. And he spoke the truth to Herod, for example, at the cost of his own freedom. 
And ultimately, he would lose his life because of his stand for truth. He was not a reed blowing in the wind. And that's exactly why he captured the attention of the nation. That's what they went out to see. He asks again in verse 25, What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. He says, Did you go out to see a fashion model? Were you impressed with John's outfit? Is he some man who is living a life of luxury and seeking comfort? No. Jesus said, you can find those kind of people anywhere. They're in king's courts. They're in big houses. They're the wealthy who pander to those that are influential. They navigate the upper echelons of polite society by knowing who to talk to and which names to drop. And you can find them in king's courts. But John's not in the king's courts. John is out in the desert. John wears camel hair and leather belts, and he eats bugs, locusts in the wilderness, and wild honey. That's his diet. He stands alone in the desert, separated from the world. They could see wealthy people with impressive clothing any day they wanted in the city, in king's courts. But they went out into the wilderness to see something different. He asks a third time. Verse 26, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. John is no reed blowing in the wind. He is no comfort-seeking softy. He's a prophet like Elijah in the Old Testament, who was called by Ahab the troubler of Israel. He is a prophet, one who spoke for God like the prophets of old, even when the truth was offensive and unpopular. John was God's spokesman. But Jesus continues, John is a prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He's not just any prophet. John is a key figure in God's timeline for his kingdom. He's the forerunner who prepares the way for the Messiah. And Jesus, at this point, quotes this well-known promise from Malachi chapter 3. You can see it there in verse 27. This is he, speaking of John, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. There were many prophets, but there's only one who prepared the way. There were many prophets that predicted Messiah would come, but there was only one prophet who announced, He's here. It's not just that he is coming, he has come. John is a key link, a bridge between the time of promise and the time of fulfillment. And he is, according to Jesus and according to Malachi, my messenger. He is God's man, sent by God to fulfill an an important role in his unfolding plan of salvation. And then Jesus gives the highest of all accolades in verse 28. It says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. The Pharisees may have scorned John. The scribes may have ignored him. Herod may have imprisoned him. But no one is greater than John. Now think about this for a moment. For some of these faithful Jews who had read their Old Testament, Jesus is saying that John is greater than Abraham, the father of the faith. That John is greater than Moses, who wrote our law, who met with God on the mountain. That John is greater than Elijah and Elisha, those prophets of old. That John is greater than King David. 
And dare we say it, John is greater than Mary, the one who gave birth to the Messiah. He says, there is no one born among women who is greater than John. This is the ultimate endorsement of John in his ministry. And then comes this shocking twist. I tell you, verse 28, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why does Jesus say this? And what does he mean by it? It's a fascinating statement. I believe here that Jesus is showing us that the reason he's exalting John, the reason he's lifting up John, is because he really wants to exalt John's message. You see, John preached repentance so that the people might prepare to receive the Messiah. And in receiving the Messiah, that is how they would enter the kingdom of God. And those who enter the kingdom, as Jesus preached in his sermon in the Beatitudes, although they may be poor in this life, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Though they are persecuted here, Jesus says, your reward is great in heaven. To use the words of Paul, John sees through a glass dimly, but those who enter the kingdom will see face to face. The least of all the saints, once glorified, once resurrected, once they hear the words of their master enter into the kingdom, they will be made fully like Christ. And even the least of the saints in that moment will be greater than John ever was in his current state. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Have you ever thought about that? What will it be to be made fully like Jesus? We're God's children now, which is amazing. It's a grace, it's a blessing, but what we will be someday is hard to imagine. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, Jesus speaks of those who have entered the kingdom. He says that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Shine like the sun. This is a picture of glory. They will be glorious, radiating glory like the sun. This has echoes of Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus says that those who listen to John's message and by faith believe in John's Messiah, the one he's pointing to, that they will end up in their glorified state being far greater than John ever was. Jesus makes this comparison to ensure that they don't worship John, even though he's the greatest ever born among men. Instead, he wants them to listen to John. Listen to John. Listen to John's message. If he's this great and if he's God's messenger, then shouldn't we listen to him and receive his message? Those who listen to John and believe in what he preached and follow the one who comes after him, their destiny is a glory that shines even greater than this great prophet. So this is what Jesus thinks of John. But what do they think of John? Well, Luke tells us how it landed on the crowd. He gives us this parenthetical statement. And here we find this first insight into what the gospel reveals. Here's where we find our point. 
Verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The people, including the tax collectors, by the way, a group that's famous for their moral compromise, infamous rather, for their worldly entanglements, it says that the people declared God just, literally that they justified God. Now, if you've been in the church very long, you've probably heard that word justified. It's even in some of our songs. And we think of it usually in terms of God justifying us. To justify means to declare righteous. That's what it means. So when God justifies a sinner, when he justifies us, that's a legal declaration where God makes a pronouncement. And that pronouncement actually accomplishes what it declares. When he declares us righteous, he's making us to be righteous. But when a man justifies God, it's not exactly the same. When man justifies God, when a man declares God just, like these people did, it is rather an acknowledgement of what God is, an acknowledgement of what God has always been, that he is just, he is righteous. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In Genesis chapter 18, 25, Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is always yes. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 97.2, the clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 7 verse 11 declares, God is a righteous judge. The response of the people here as they declare God just, it shows that the people understood. They understood that John's message is really God's message. And they're saying, God is righteous. His message to us through John is righteous. His judgment of us is righteous. His judgment that we are sinners and that we need to repent, that is a just judgment. The rebukes that John leveled towards us were deserved. We need to make ready for the coming of Messiah by dealing with our sins. John is right because God is righteous and just in his word to us. And this is what the baptism signified. Their baptism, it says that they had been baptized by John. That baptism was a public declaration that they are spiritual outsiders, that they're no better than Gentiles who need to convert to Judaism. They needed fresh entrance into the community of faith. They needed to repent and confess their need for God's mercy and grace. So the people who had been baptized, they heard John's message, and they heard what Jesus said about John, and they said, amen. That's right. This is true. God is just. His judgment of us and his word to us is righteous. To declare God just, this is the opposite of making excuses for sin. This is the opposite of comparing ourselves to other people and justifying ourselves. This is the opposite of protesting God's requirements, complaining that it's unfair, complaining that God has set the bar too high, that his expectations for us to be holy, that's unrealistic. That's unreasonable. 
To declare God just is to humbly allow ourselves to be completely analyzed and assessed by God's perfect word. And then to humbly agree with God's diagnosis of who and what we are. To agree with his diagnosis of our failures, our sinfulness, and our need for repentance. John came preaching repentance, and the people declared God just. They justified him and said, we deserve it because we are sinful, and we're not ready for the Messiah, and we need to get ready. We need to be baptized. You see, the gospel ministry of John revealed the righteousness of God, and the people saw it. They acknowledged it, declaring God just. Elsewhere in Scripture, we discover that God's righteousness is seen not only in the call to repentance and the warning of judgment, his judgments are just, but also God's gracious provision for sinners is also righteous and just. As Jesus died on the cross, God's justice was satisfied. You see, for you and me to be forgiven, sin has to be dealt with. The gospel is not a message that God sort of winks and nods and sweeps our sins under the rug. The gospel is the message that God has judged our sins as he laid them on the shoulders of his own son. That he judged Jesus in our place. That the penalty has been paid in full. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, our sins are laid upon Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us so that God can declare us to be righteous. This is the only way for us to be reconciled to God. And the gospel message, the story of Jesus' death in our place, it magnifies the righteousness of God by simultaneously declaring the judgment of our sins, but also providing a way for us to be forgiven, to be made right with God. His justice and his mercy are perfectly displayed at the cross without conflict and without compromise. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The people's response to John and John's message is ultimately a response to God. And the people gladly confess that God is just. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. There's a second thing the gospel reveals. Secondly, we see this in verse 30. The gospel reveals the purpose of God. Verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You see, there's a humility and a submission that is inherent in the people's confession. When they declare God just, that is humble. And this humble kind of faith is absolutely necessary to enter the kingdom of God, but not everyone responds that way. The Pharisees and the lawyers, who are often called scribes elsewhere, they do not listen to John. They didn't respond to his call to repent. 
and they refused to be baptized by John. And in doing so, Luke says, they are rejecting the purpose of God for themselves. What is God's purpose? Well, right here in this context, we see that John was sent by God to prepare the way. They refused to make themselves ready to receive the Messiah. He has sent Jesus, as we saw in in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus quotes from Isaiah, He sent Jesus to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But they do not see themselves as captives to the kingdom of darkness. They do not see themselves as enslaved to sin. So they do not receive the liberation that Jesus comes to bring, this spiritual rescue. You see, God's purpose The purpose of God is to redeem sinners through faith in Christ, but they refused to see their need for salvation. They refused to repent of their sin, refused to trust in Christ, and in doing so, they rejected the purpose of God. They rejected his program of salvation. You see, both John and Jesus are key developments in a grand story, a powerful drama that started back in the Garden of Eden, a drama that leads us to a new heaven and a new earth, a drama that features this conflict between an ancient dragon and the seed of the woman, a battle between light and darkness, a battle between life and death, a battle between truth and lies, a battle that God fully intends to win. And God plans to win, to accomplish this purpose in such a way that displays the glory of his grace. His purpose is to rescue and ransom and redeem many sinners. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. This purpose which, Paul says, he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This purpose, this plan is salvation and redemption and restoration through Jesus. That's God's purpose and plan. It's a rescue mission for sinners, reconciliation for the world, and it all hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This purpose started in eternity past. And this purpose, Paul continues, has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Friends, this is what God is doing in the world. This is what God is doing throughout history. The question is, will you embrace the purpose of God that is revealed in the gospel, his plan to save sinners through the death and resurrection of his son? Will you embrace that purpose or will you refuse it? It is only self-righteousness that would cause men to reject the purpose of God. It can only be pride that would keep us from submitting to and embracing this purpose. 
It can only be spiritual blindness and hardness of heart that would cause someone to reject this purpose, this gracious purpose of God. And this rejection of God's purpose is seen in their rejection of God's servant and God's word. When they reject God, it's because they're rejecting God's word through God's servant, John the Baptist. You see, the gospel reveals not only the righteousness of God, it reveals the purpose of God. And sadly, there were, were many there that day that Luke says rejected the purpose of God for themselves because they refused to be baptized, which shows they rejected John's message, which means they rejected John as a messenger, which means they rejected the God who sent him. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, it reveals the purpose of God, and then finally, the gospel reveals the wisdom of God. Following this parenthetical statement by Luke, he picks back up with Jesus' words. Verse 31, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus is obviously aware that there's many present who are rejecting God's message through John, but they're not just rejecting John. They're also rejecting Jesus. And so he speaks directly to those that are stubbornly refusing to believe. And he poses this simple illustration. He says, you know what you guys are like? Let me tell you. You're like children playing games in the city, in the marketplace to be specific. That's where the adults would go on a daily basis to buy and sell, to do business. So as you can imagine, when the parents are standing around and the kids are bored, they're going to start playing games, right? They're going to start pretending, make-believe. Kids are always coming up with games like this, and these games often imitate life. And two of the greatest events in Jewish life in the first century were weddings and funerals. Those were the biggest, most momentum occasions in a community. A time of great celebration and a time of great mourning. That's where the musicians did their thing. That's where everybody paid attention. And so often the kids would play these games of imitation. Hey, let's play wedding. You know, let's, let's do music and, and dance and, and let's do all the festivities. Or, hey, let's pretend funeral. Pretend I died. How sad would you be? You know, kids play games like this. But sometimes despite what they look like when they first come to us, they look so innocent, sometimes children can have bad attitudes, can't they? Sometimes kids can be grumpy. Kids, raise your hands if you've ever been grumpy before. Good, we got honest kids here. Sometimes kids can be selfish. Sometimes kids can be brats, right? Sometimes kids get upset if you don't play their game the way you want them to, the way they want you to. Well, fine, if you won't play my game, I'm going to take my ball and go home. They fold their arms, stick their noses in the air, they sulk, they complain, they pout. The children here that Jesus speaks of represent the unbelieving Pharisees and lawyers. They're like children who will only play if they get to make the rules. Do you kids like playing with someone who always has to make all the rules and be in control? 
It's not very fun. Jesus says that's what these scribes and Pharisees are like. They're offended at John, for example, because he won't dance. He won't celebrate. Instead of happiness and positivity, which is what they wanted to hear from John, he lives this Spartan life in the desert and calls them to repent and warns them of judgment. And they don't like that. They're like little kids upset that they're playing a flute, but no one will dance because John won't play by their rules. John won't follow their lead. So they condemn him. They accuse him of having a demon. He lives out in the wilderness and eats weird stuff and dresses all crazy. He's a crazy man. And we are not going to be lectured by a crazy man. That's the attitude of these religious leaders. And Jesus says, you're just like petulant children that won't play unless you get to make all the rules. But they're also offended at Jesus, aren't they? They think that Jesus should be listening to them, not preaching to them. They, and, and they think that fasting and being very careful to avoid unholy people, they think that are the rule, is the rules of the game. But they find Jesus feasting and spending time with sinners. He's not playing by their rules. So they're like little kids that are singing a dirge, and they're upset that Jesus will not weep. So they criticize and dismiss him. Because Jesus, like John, won't play by their rules. He won't do what they want him to do. So they condemn him as a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. And they refuse to be taught by someone like that. They see Jesus as beneath them. The religious leaders who reject Jesus are like foolish children. But then Jesus gives a contrast. Those who embrace John and Jesus and their message those who embrace the gospel, those who see what God is doing in this moment through them, he says they are like wise children. Verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus says those who submit to what God is doing through John and Jesus are like wise children who acknowledge that we aren't the ones who get to make the rules. We aren't the ones who tell God what he should do for us. We submit to him. We aren't in control of this game called life. God is. And the gospel reveals his wisdom, his solution, his diagnosis, his prescription, his power. And this is a wisdom that's to be received with humility and faith. To be children of wisdom is to honor and acknowledge the wisdom of God. You see, the wisdom, or the gospel rather, reveals the wisdom of God for those with eyes to see it. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, Scripture describes Jesus as the wisdom of God incarnate, wisdom personified. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Paul writes that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That's the rules they want to play by. That's their expectations. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. His work in the gospel reveals the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It's God's wisdom that is personified in Jesus, magnified in the gospel. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think this is perhaps an unexplored truth for many of us. Have you ever contemplated the incredible wisdom of God that's on display in the gospel? The wisdom of God to send his son to become a man so that we could be saved. That's God's idea. That is his wise solution that he knew would be the best way to magnify his glory and grant us the joy of salvation. Consider the wisdom of God that Jesus had to be one of us so that he could represent us to God. He had to be a man, but he also had to be God because no man could save us. We see the wisdom of God in the incarnation of Jesus. Think about the wisdom of God that Jesus was born of a virgin so that he's fully human, but he does not inherit Adam's sinful nature through the line of his father. That's the wisdom of God. Think about the wisdom of God to choose the exact moment in history when the Roman Empire had secured this peace throughout all the known world and where everyone had a shared language because the Greeks before them had exported their culture all the way to the edge of the known map so that the gospel could rapidly spread across national borders on roads built by the Romans using words that were in the Greek language. Think about the wisdom of God of all the moments in history to pick that exact moment to provide his salvation. Have you considered the astonishing wisdom of God that his son Jesus would beat death by dying? That he would undo the curse by becoming a curse for us, as Paul says in Galatians. That he would bring us eternal joy through his unfathomable suffering and sorrow. Consider the wisdom of God on display in the gospel. That he allowed Satan to enter into Judas. On the night of the Passover... The devil was allowed to think for a moment that he had won. And yet in God's perfect wisdom, he was even using Satan to accomplish what he had planned from the beginning, the sacrificial death of his son. Have you considered the wisdom of God that that centuries, millennia before this, he had brought Israel out of Egypt with blood on the doorposts, and he had told them to celebrate this rescue with the Passover once a year. And then Jesus would be crucified on the Passover as God brings about a spiritual exodus for all who would ever believe. Have you considered the wisdom of God to bring salvation through the gospel so that not just the Jews, but also Gentiles like us can be made heirs of the promise? Have you thought and meditated on the wisdom, the profound, infinite wisdom of God that is on display in the gospel? We could go on and on and on, and we will. Not today, but in eternity. We will go on and on, marveling at the wisdom of God in the gospel as we see Jesus face to face. And we see the fruit of his wise and glorious plan for salvation. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God the purpose of God, and the wisdom of God. Therefore, our response to the message of the gospel, whether it's in Jesus' day or today, 
Our response to the message of the gospel is really our response to God himself. We're dealing with God. The question is, which group are you in? Will you declare God just? Will you embrace his saving purposes for you in Christ? Will you marvel at the wisdom of God? Or will you refuse his word today? Will you reject his purpose? Will you dismiss his messengers, his wisdom? You see, faith declares God to be just. Unbelief judges God wrongly. Faith submits to God's purpose. Unbelief is stubborn and rebellious. Faith acknowledges the wisdom of God. But unbelief is a deadly kind of foolishness. I hope you will see God in the gospel. See him and respond to him with humility and faith today. I know many of you here today are Christians. You are born again. You believe in Jesus. It's a good reminder. Do we see the gospel as primarily about us? Or do we see God in the gospel? Do we see his glory and are we moved to worship, to greater faith, to a deeper joy? Will we continue to declare God just? To say he is righteous and just? Will we continue to submit ourselves to his redemptive purpose, knowing that that purpose includes changing us day by day to become more like Jesus? That that purpose includes using us as ambassadors for Christ to tell other people the good news. That's included in God's purpose. Will we grow as children of wisdom who increasingly delight in God's word and God's ways and proclaim the goodness of his design? I hope you've seen God in the gospel today and that you will give thanks and rejoice for all that God is doing in the world and all that he gives us in his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the gospel. And I ask God that you would help us to see more clearly perhaps than we've ever seen before. That we would see in this message of good news. That we would see in your servant John. That we would see in your son Jesus. Your glory. Your righteousness. Your sovereign purpose. Your infinite wisdom. And Lord I ask that you would enable us by your grace to respond rightly to you. That we would consider you today. That we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, help us to see. Lord, for any among us today who may not know you. I pray that you would grant them eyes to see, ears to hear, and show yourself to them today. We pray that you would continue your purpose of salvation among us and through us, and that as we celebrate your gospel, that you would be honored and pleased as we declare you just, as we celebrate your purpose and marvel at your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.